Hello and welcome back to Softcats Explain It podcast series. This is episode 10 of season six, and we are now motoring towards the tail end of the year faster than Max Verstappen at the last Vegas Grand Prix. My name is Dean Gardner, Softcats Technology Director, and we're here to explain it. Every episode, our team of experts are here to talk tech in simple, jargon-free language, and today is no exception, although we do come with a twist. So the key is in the title, and on that note, I will introduce today's topic. Drive for innovative automotive. Just wrote that to see if I could actually say it. I could, yay. Today we are covering the automotive industry, and we are here to talk about how the industry continues to modernize by innovating, designing, and building the now and the future of transportation that positively impacts all of us. To provide insights and answer questions, and to ignite the engines, I have a pit crew that is the envy of many. Please welcome Softcat's very own sales leader in the transport and automotive space, Chris Reynolds, Brian Ross from our partners at VMware by Broadcom, and an incredibly special guest from our good friends at JLR, Mike Scaife. Let us start with the automotive industry itself. And first question to Mike, the automotive industry, well, they're innovation leaders. The level of technology advancements over the years appears to be driving so many global initiatives such as electrification, AI and edge. Why is this the case? Why has this industry been so so successful at this for many decades and certainly what looks like the years to come? Yeah, it's a great point, Dean. I think when I think about why we've got so much innovation, I think it's because the industry has to be that innovative. Um, if you look at the challenges and pressures that face the industry around the world, you've got things like uh, climate change and the resultant government regulations around the world about vehicle emissions and so on. So that drives a lot of innovation around you know, sustainable fuels, alternative fuels, uh, the move to electrification that you mentioned, that comes off the back of that. You've got people's expectations around safety. So that drives innovation around vehicle design and features like automatic braking, for example. You've got people's changing attitudes towards vehicle ownership. So the fact you can now buy a car online without even visiting a showroom, there's been a lot of innovation in the sort of sales channels as a result of that side of things. Um, security is an important factor. So we hear about increasingly novel ways of people stealing vehicles. So that's driven a lot of innovation around security and vehicle tracking, et cetera, in that sort of space. And then the general kind of move to you know a, a more digital way of life is obviously driving a lot of the tech innovation as well, which again, I'm sure we'll dig into in more detail. A car is no longer just a car to people. They expect it to just seamlessly integrate into the rest of their digital lives. It's just another device in their life. So that's driven a lot of innovation around the tech side of things, the software on the cars, the way those cars connect to the rest of people's lives, et cetera. So all those kind of external factors, I think, mean an industry like this has to innovate, has to move fast and has to change because if, like most industries, if we didn't change, the products would die, right? If we just had the same old gas-guzzling basic cars we had 20, 30 years ago, people wouldn't buy them anymore. So it's, it's about, I think it's those external pressures and having to respond to them that's driven a lot of this innovation that you're talking about. And it's that full life cycle piece, isn't it? From the design manufacturing of the car itself to the bits that you mentioned, where we're using digital channels now to, as you say, virtually go and buy a car, scope your car. You know, you're using phones to turn them on, heat the cars on you know, before you go outside. All these kind of interactive points now where we're using technology at our fingertips from logging into the PC, yeah. looking at web from our phone, et cetera, to the point where it's being manufactured with all of those component parts as well. It is incredible, isn't it, over the last X amount of years, how that's moved so fast. And do, do you see the, the investment continuing in that space over the next 20, 30 years? And to a point, where do you see that investment going next? Is there a next or is it just kind of evolutionary from where we are? 
I think it will continue. And you're right, there's been a lot of advancement recently, you know, things like virtual reality to, to look around a vehicle so you don't even have to go through the showroom, all that sort of stuff on the back of it. Where's it going to go in the future? I think, yeah, I mean, obviously alternative fuels, electrification, that's going to be a massive focus. Um, autonomous vehicles, which again, I'm sure we'll talk about, that's going to be a big, big focus as well because I mentioned sort of people's changing attitude to vehicle ownership. I can see a world where people don't even own cars anymore and it's just a sort of shared pool of autonomous cars you just jump into. Right? That sort of That's thing. a shh yeah. moment, isn't it? That you don't Sorry, own yeah. cars. <laughs> exactly. no, no, of course, it'll keep buying cars. Um, exactly. So I'm going to bring Brian in here because everything we just talked about is around technical innovation and it impacts back-end systems, manufacturing, how things are being made, how certain data points uh, need to be orchestrated and built and applications need to be modernized. All these things that are now happening specifically in this industry seem to be going very, very fast, Brian. So application modernization is kind of the key component parts, surely, in this space. What is the, the crucial factor there around application and data modernization? Where do you start in that space, in this industry? And is it just this industry or is it across many other industries now that, that, that are now following suit? Thanks, Dean. Well, as Mike said, I think the, there's a lot of change happening in automotive and removing from what was traditionally uh, an object that you parked outside your house to being something that's part of your life. That now invariably means your digital life. And I think for companies, automotive, that means that you need to change a lot in the way that we're developing. So we're no longer developing just this, this object. There's a bunch of software behind that to, to drive that customer experience. And that's not unique to automotive. We're seeing that in banking. We're seeing that in public sector. It's all about digital transformation. I think one of the challenges we see is that although we can develop more software, and we're seeing that across the industry, everyone's wanting to move faster, better experiences. But the challenge really is that as we grow these big things, it gets more complicated. Now, that might be more components. That could be more vendors, more different types of software, more languages. Or it could be that you're adopting more than one public cloud. So we end up in this world where you have a, a degree of cloud chaos, as we call it, where you've got data in all different places and trying to pull that together is really, really difficult. One of the things we're doing at VMware is we're helping people bring some of that together, simplify that, and make it possible so we can keep developing quickly, but also do it safely. Because we can't sacrifice customer safety, especially in the automotive world, if we're going to trust our cars to, to drive us around or, you know, in, in Jaguar's case, take us off-road with Land Rover, right? Like, we want that to be a, a really safe environment. We want to make sure that no one's going to be able to turn up and unlock our cars without our access. So I think the, the the challenges we see really is just around how do we deal with scale? And that is what digital transformation is all about. That's what app modernization is all about. So without getting too into the, the weeds of technology, it's tools like Kubernetes and containerization that's making it easier for us to deploy applications safely. It's making it easier for us to upgrade those things as we move forwards. And we can tie that to a golden path so that as we're developing software, we can test as we go. So we're not waiting until the very end. We can be really confident in what we're producing just as it gets to production. So let's go into the weeds a little bit around the technology, because I think we see a lot of customers, certainly we see a lot of customers, Chris, I'm sure you'll, you'll, you'll come in here at this point. The modernization, the digital transformation tagline, it's kind of been banded around now for quite a few years. There's a tangible thing. There's an action. There's true transformation in organizations that need to happen. Automotive seems to be almost pioneers in that space, I guess, in terms of the innovation that they're building and presenting to these devices, cars that are in our everyday lives. 
how easy is it, Brian and Chris, from your experience with customers, how easy or how difficult is it from what you see to actually do this stuff well and properly? So I get the benefit of working with many customers across many industries. And uh, a large part of my role really is looking at how we bring technology, business and process together. So without doubt, it is not easy, but the mistake I see often is that we dive straight into technology rather than looking at those other factors. And I think that's a, a vital part. How do we bring the people along with us? So, you know, you're asking the question about where we start. I think it always starts with business value. What is it that we're really trying to achieve for the end customer in all of this? How are we going to improve their lives? And then from there, we can start looking at the tools we can use from that technology toolbox to make that more of a reality. But without doubt, we need to bring technology, business and people together. Yeah, I think the the, the point about people is really important, uh, Brian. So if you look at recent surveys, 70% of Britons are uncomfortable with autonomous vehicles, lacking human control and safety is their top concern. I think we've got a huge public perception challenge in the UK. Half of those respondents were open to um, autonomous vehicles for disabilities or age-related driving limitations, for example. But um, when you compare the UK, uh, you know, 70% of the UK being uncomfortable with AVs compared to in China, 75% of people are, are comfortable with them. Um, 81% of people in Hong Kong are comfortable with with, with AVs. We're, we're kind of lagging behind in the UK. And I think that public perception, that, that the bringing the people on that journey is, is, is really important. And I think when we talk about consumerization of technology, you know, everyone's got apps on their smartphones nowadays. And when we look at app acceleration and some of the great work that VMware are doing with, with JLR, you can see real tangible benefits in the acceleration of the adoption of that tech through applications that just work. And Brian, you made a really good point earlier about, you know, the digital ecosystem is just embedded. Uh, you know, everyone's using it now. A car isn't just an object, it's part of your life. And I think applications go a long way to to support that. Chris, thanks for that. And 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 I think, you know, it's fair to say that you attend a fair few transport steering groups and communities and you're involved in that industry um, quite heavily now. And, you know, you mentioned there are a lot of stats around pe bringing people along and um, people being comfortable in this particular space around this, uh, around the vehicle side of it. So, so what else are you hearing about in the wider transport space? Because we're talking about consumerization, people's cars, but is this happening across that wider transport industry as well? Yeah, yeah, it is. And a yeah, really good question. Um, so there was actually a, re a really big change recently. So the automated vehicles bill was finally announced in the King's speech in November. And that basically paves the way for legislation and laws to be created in this area. So it was a really monumental moment in November that happened. And really, that that kind of new bill, it marks the UK as a future hub for high-tech growth, especially in the autonomous vehicle sector. So I'm quite excited about that. We've waited a long time for that to happen. It could create you know, 38,000 jobs by 2035, which coincidentally is the year as it's the same year as the proposed ban on internal combustion vehicles now that good old Rishi's made a bit of a U-turn. But as part of that bill, uh, and generally across the transport sector, safety is a top priority. So there's, there's rigorous frameworks to ensure that vehicles can um, navigate safely, uh, self-navigate safely. There's responsibility for compliance now firmly on the manufacturers and the OEMs rather than the drivers. So that's a big shift in terms of who's responsible should an incident happen. 
And we're also seeing something around, a lot of work around the digitization of what's called traffic regulation orders. That sounds supremely boring, but if you boil it down, it's all about making digital maps and digital layouts of roads so that cars can understand and follow those roads and also digitizing the rules of those roads so that cars can adapt and adopt those rules of the roads. So there's a lot of work that the Department for Transport are doing, National Highways are doing with that um, traffic regulation order digitization, which then obviously OEMs need to follow suit and support. So where we're talking about data management, cyber management of data, how we transfer data from roads to cars and back again, application management, all of that stuff combined is really important as we look to to, to, to transform the, the roads into that digital ecosystem. So yeah, that's it generally from a transport perspective, but I think from a from an automotive point of view, Dean, we're seeing a bit of a thriving market at the moment. So you know, the car market grew by 9.5% in November. We're seeing a lot of businesses and fleets adopting BEVs or battery electric vehicles, thanks to the tax incentives that are out there. But there is a bit of a headwind on the horizon. The European Commission is formulating a plan that's going to soften the blow of potential 10% taxes on trade between UK and EU and back again for electric vehicles. So if that happens and those trade rules do come in, we're going to start to see the market hit with increased costs of EVs. Um, so hopefully they can, hopefully the, the, the European Commission can fix that. But we're seeing a lot of companies looking at software and connectivity. Uh, VW are hiring lots of Tesla staff. We're seeing Infineon acquiring 3DB, for example. There's a lot of movement and mergers in that side of the market. And battery technology is obviously a hot topic. You know, we're seeing... JLR's, of course, JLR's Gigafactory in Somerset showing a big commitment to that area. Fantastic news for UK PLC. And battery patents are also leading the way in terms of patent submissions. Um, you know, the number of patents from a battery perspective eclipse uh, all of the other patent categories currently. So it shows you how much work and, and development in that area is happening. So there is an awful lot going on. It's a really interesting sector and a really interesting area at the moment. And what I'm really keen to continue to do is to knit together the the government departments and also the automotive OEMs to ensure that we're driving the, the industry forwards in the right way, in a governed way, and delivering a safe and reliable transport network for, for the consumer. So, so on that note, um, there's a lot there, P politics as well. We'll go, it sounds it's very political and uh, legislation obviously is still being released and formulated. I'm sure that will be a moving target over the next few years. But Mike, we mentioned there about the safety and you know all these the data points capturing road mapping and communications between car i'm assuming maps that are in navigation systems etc now all that gets kind of uh, evolved looked after developed but there's been reports recently that some of the software um and some of the technology that are required to support all of those component parts that chris mentioned they're not as good as maybe some people are alluding to or not as advanced. There's been some reports recently out of, I think, uh, someone from Tesla who's, who's, who's created a report which backs that up. So what's your thoughts on that? And you know, do you think it's in a position, I mean, it's a, such a big question. Do you think it's in a position that someone somewhere will go, yeah, actually, this is ready for the road. This stuff is ready to go mass adoption. Or are we still in trial and error territory? And if we're in trial and error territory, that's a dangerous territory to be when you've got cars on the road. Absolutely, yeah. So I think that, there's those different levels of vehicle autonomy from zero to five, right? I, th I think JLR, we're probably about level two, which is, you know, some kind of autonomous features, but obviously still very human in the loop. Um, Tesla, I would say probably level three because they've got the autopilot feature, which is a bit more, I guess, about you can, you can be hands-off, but you again, you still need the human in the loop there to take over if something goes wrong. Um, the ultimate level is level five autonomy, which is 
literally you get in a car, you don't even know you're driving it, it just drives itself everywhere, completely hands off. Um, I do think we're quite some way away from that, from what I can see, for the reasons you mentioned. So um, safety is one thing. To, to Chris's point about sort of frameworks, et cetera, legal side of things, I think that's really important. Um, the point about liability is really important and making those moral decisions. So how do you program a car to decide whether to crash into a pedestrian or to a car coming the other way, right? How do you how do you do that technically? How do you sort of sort out the liability side of things, the legal side of things? There's all those challenges to overcome yet. And then yeah, you've got the aspects of um public confidence, um, as Chris mentioned before as well. That's, there's a long way to go on that side of things yet. And testing vehicles is interesting because I think from what I see, autonomous vehicles work really well, you know, in a simple environment like on a motorway or a freeway, for example, or maybe in an environment where there's exclusively autonomous vehicles driving around. So there's communities in the US where they've got, you know, sort of test beds for just autonomous vehicles driving around that works fine but where the complexity comes in is in those more complex environments so you know complex road networks talked about mapping those out um an environment where you've got pedestrians walking around non-autonomous vehicles driving about that's the complex side of things that we've got to crack i think how does an autonomous vehicle behave in those more challenging environments and and yeah to your point how how do you test for that in a safe way because you know Tesla are sort of doing that testing on the public roads to some extent, which is is great because you do need that real world testing. But again, you've got to do it in such a way that you're not endangering the public before it's safe to have those vehicles out there. So there's there's a real challenge there. I think so. I think we're, we're probably somewhere off full level five autonomy. I'm, I'm probably you know decade plus at this point at least, um, and we're sort of hovering around that level two, level three where we've got some autonomous features that do make cars safer and, and more self driving. But we're, we're somewhere off that full autonomy. I think. Yeah, and I'm I'm seeing the um I mean the fact that the UK plans to have driverless cars on the road by 25 seems quite aspirational, but there's going to be an initial focus on coaches and lorries um, featuring that autonomous technology on motorways. So quite a you know, when when we're looking at piloting this, we're not going to be talking busy urban areas. It's going to be on motorways where we've got sensors that can support that delivery, and that's actually backed that coaches and lorries development is backed by a hundred million pound government investment. So we are seeing the government putting their hands in their pockets for that money and that funding, which is which is great to see. And I think that King's bill will certainly accelerate that. And yeah, by 25, you know, we'll see other self-driving vehicles, those for like public transport and deliveries. We've all seen, well, I suppose if anyone's ever been to Milton Keynes and, and other areas in, in the South, you've seen the little white uh, vehicles uh, shooting around the pavements, delivering your Waitrose shopping and whatnot. Um, I'm sure we'll see more of those autonomous vehicles start to come through. Uh, and that, again, is really good for public perception. You know, if they're seeing these smaller vehicles delivering their goods to their houses safely, it starts to starts to uh, build that confidence, I think, for the general public. I love the idea that we start in the UK with small vehicles like that, and then we don't go anywhere in the middle. We go to big, massive trucks and lorries on the motorway. That's a hell of a jump typical us i guess in this country Uh, we'll just go and put big big massive dangerous vehicles on the road and make them drive themselves we'll see how that pans out i'm sure it'll be fine these vehicles these big vehicles small vehicles cars etc um brian to you are they classed as app and data edges now you know because the amount of information they're collecting and the stuff that it's doing big computers so that's really interesting my background is actually in telco so i'm i've been following the 5g rollout really closely because i think that enables us to have a new world of capability. And if we think back to, to the early days of our phones not really having data and us getting excited about being able to send SMSs, I think we're at the same point with 5G as well, whereby immediately we're going to have the ability to have data and the internet available to us in high bandwidth so we can apply this to, to much more exciting applications. Of course, that comes with some challenges because, to your point, I think at that point a car 
really becomes uh, an edge device that is connected to some type of network. Again, we need to think about the security of that. We need to think about what happens if we do hit some kind of like Wi-Fi black spot. But more importantly, we need to think about how we're going to manage the software on that edge device. How are we going to keep that up to date? Mike, I know one of the things you've been looking at in, in Jaguar is how we do over-the-air updates to cars in a safe way. And you know, there's one thing if we're deploying to production and we make a mistake and we have to roll it back. That's something we all know how to do. That's a very different challenge if you need to do that to a million cars throughout the UK, right? So how we go about managing those edge locations is really important. And certainly in my role, I'm seeing more and more edge use cases, be that uh, factories, be that in stores where it's kind of like a, a cupboard full of servers, which used to be difficult to get into, whereas now we're laying down a, a solid Kubernetes-backed technology stack, which means we can launch anything there. And I think also with AI, I had to be the one to mention <laughs> AI in the call, right? But I think for, for cars, it's really, really apt because if we can put more technology in there in terms of raw compute power mixed with internet 5G connectivity, that gets really, really interesting. Um, and I think that's the big challenge for cars. I don't think it's really about an object or brake horsepower anymore. I think it's all about that digital customer experience and what we can do. What can we make this technology do to make that more exciting for customers? So big, massive edge devices with a load of security updates that are going over the wire instantly. Is that hackable? Does that mean the, the attack surface expands everywhere at that point? Because obviously we talk about cyber and it's worth noting the last two episodes we did was around, were around AI. So we're okay with AI. So if you want to listen to the last two episodes, we do talk about that subject. We don't go into it at this, this stage, but the, the attack surface in this landscape, I mean, suddenly everything's connected. Everything's online. I mean, we're seeing threats kind of expand exponentially every single day. So, you know, if we suddenly had have all of these kind of big, massive lorries and devices that are driving around with nobody actually driving them, all connected to a five, and I'm sure in future 6G network um, mesh. I mean, wow. I mean, what, 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 is, that, is that scary to think that all those devices could get hacked at once and then suddenly we're in trouble? Is that, is that me being maybe iRobot movie stuff? I don't know. But that, that kind of scares me a little bit. We worry about computers getting hacked. All these devices that are online that are dangerous that are ultimately killing machines, let's call them that. Is that something that we, we need to be considering or <laughs> scared about? I don't know. Is that, is, that, is that me being wild? No, I think that, that it's, a, it's a real problem. I'm very aware that we're working in a world just now where there are more and more security tools available each year, yet the public are seeing more and more data breaches every year. And there's many reasons that might be the case. It might be we're moving too fast and breaking too many things. It might be that we've got too much complexity in our software stacks. But either way, we need to find a way of building more trust into that system. So coming back to this, this concept of a golden path, how can we go about building systems in a reliable fashion so that developers can push software safely, get the benefit of the teams that surround them, like security and compliance, and really making that a feature of the software rather than it being something that we do at the end of production? So for example, um, if I think about my banking application, multi-factor authentication and having to show my face and blink at it several times, it's a little bit annoying, but would I use a banking application that didn't have that? So I think you know, that's an example of where security becomes a feature, and that's how we need to think about software. 
And Mike, I know that's something you've been doing in your department. It's really building out that platform so that it includes all of the safety controls around building software. So developers don't have to have all of that knowledge, all of that expertise, all of the time. We can democratize some of that so that we can we can all take our fair share. Because without doubt, developers just now are overloaded, in my humble opinion, in terms of what we're expecting from them cognitively. So we need to ease that process for them without doubt. Yeah, exactly that. I think, you know, to your point there, Brian, we try and automate as much of that as possible, right? So just take out the developer's hands completely. Um, that's things like vulnerability scanning for the packages we use in the software. It's how we do deployments. Um, yeah, we just want to just want to build it into the entire process. It includes, you know, the underlying cloud infrastructure as well. So having security built in there, et cetera, using platforms like Tanzu, et cetera. It, it's massively important. And to your point, Dean, yeah, the, the attack surface, the attack vectors are definitely changing, definitely increasing. You hear about cars with keyless entry and how you can sort of steal a car or someone's driveway without even having to get hold of the key all that sort of stuff very scary these concepts like um phone is a key so using your phone to unlock the vehicle that's another attack vector so it definitely seems scary but i think yeah there's, there's a lot of focus on security behind the scenes in automotive companies and you know, software and hardware side of things i had a friend of mine who on his ring doorbell saw two people get out of a car unlock this car get in his car drive his car off I mean, there's nothing you could do about it. He just had a nice recording of it. But yeah, it seems to be people doing that on your on the driveways and obviously using those cars for criminal activity. So it's something that's been happening for a few years. So yeah, I guess that potentially happening on a road when it's doing a software update, yeah, becomes a problem. Like someone takes your car and drives it away for you while you're in it. Um, I don't know if that's <laughs> Absolutely, <yeah. laughs> it's a different level. Or an autonomous vehicle taking control of itself and driving itself somewhere because someone's taking control yeah. of it. That's even more scary. Right? Without meaning to put our customers off, it's, <laughs> yeah, it's quite scary. Yeah. I've also got kind of visuals of like, um, you know, the, the the American type of security trucks that have got all the cash in the back. In the old days, if they're autonomous, you, like criminal gangs working out of some remote location, just redirecting that car to a nice warehouse where where they can unlock it and yeah i don't know there's a movie there somewhere i'm sure yeah i I mean the department for transport and the center for the protection of national infrastructure or the cpni they are developing a lot of cyber regs around how to make sure that the um, automotive industry is as secure as possible i mean you've got the standard stuff like board level accountability but there's a lot of stuff around supply chain security and ensuring resilient software and data protection across that supply chain. And I think what we're talking about here with that supply chain isn't just a traditional automotive supply chain, but but now including the road data, the national highways data that's coming into these OEMs and making sure that the supply chain of that data is accountable and protected um, and making sure that it's multi-layered. So there is a lot of work going on in the background just to bring it back to that kind of wider transport automotive market view um, to ensure that cyber regs are followed. And, and just actually on the OEM side of it, if I could just go there, I, I can imagine in one of these cars, there's a lot of component parts that are made by different organizations, different manufacturers. And so when you're building those kind of frameworks and building those, that, that, you know, that level of governance and legislation, there's a lot of organizations that have to adhere to those standards, right? And I can, I'm assuming those organizations are spread around the world. So do, do we have a, a challenge there where if someone doesn't agree to that localized legislation, because I can't, I can't imagine it's a global I mean, as you say, the, the, the government uh, announcement is very much UK and I based, I assume. So how does that impact? Like when you've got somebody's manufacturing externally in another country? There's been a big push with OEMs to generally try and um, insource the development of technology now. I mean, previously, there used to be black boxes in cars and, uh, you know, never the twain shall meet between the automotive OEM and the actual manufacturer of those boxes. And no one really knew how they worked and whatnot. Whereas now, 
the development of those, uh, there's a lot of insourcing happening so that the IP is retained by the OEM themselves and they have more accountability and ownership of that IP. So that's just something that I've noticed. Yeah, I'd echo that. So definitely we've seen that in JLR over recent years. We, we used to be black box and every component was built by a different supplier, but now a lot more of it is is in-house, built in-house, so we've got full control. That's really important going back to Brian's point about you know our, our remote software updates. It's very, very complicated to do that if you're not in full control of all the software on the vehicle, whereas if we now control more and more of those little boxes on the car, we can have more control over that. I think Ford, Ford are a great use case for that as well. So Ford talked a bit recently about how they used to, have, again, exist in that world that everything was built black box and it was really really hard for them to do to retrofit remote software updates to their vehicle so it's a, it's a big big focus definitely software supply chain is so important yeah exactly it's very yeah, it's complicated isn't it so my last question let's, let's get, go to it so formula one everybody likes formula one i think or people who like cars like formula one are we going to get to a point where we have an autonomous formula one no driver is that fun is that something that will happen any opinions let's throw that out there i'll jump in as a motorsport fan i'll jump in um so there is a there's already a a robo car. I think I've, I went to the Goodwood Festival of Speed a few years ago, and there was a demo of the robo car there, where the guy drove halfway up the hill, got out, and the car carried on without him, which was it's fascinating. But to your point, you know, is, is it entertaining? Do I want to watch a bunch of robots? What's the differentiator at that point? Since I, th- I think it will happen, I think there will be some sort of robo series if there's not already. But yeah, as someone who's kind of a fan of the sport, I guess I people get into the drama of the people side of things as well, right? Chris talked about how only you know seventy percent of people are resistant to it in the UK. I think a lot of that is because a lot of people fundamentally enjoy driving, right? People won't want autonomous vehicles. There's a sort of element of people who are passionate about that side of things as well. So it's interesting whether there'll always be those pockets of people that don't want autonomy in, in, in vehicles and in motorsport as well, I think. Well, I think much like my wife loves horses, you know, I love cars, and I don't think that's going to change. I think maybe just the way we interact with our cars might be different. You know, if I'm going a long journey, then maybe I don't want to have to drive that six hours. Um, or if I'm going to go and see friends, you know, having someone pick me up might be a good idea. But certainly a weekend and a summer's day, there's no replacement for that feeling. I can't, I, I can't echo that strongly enough. I think the emotion of motorsport, the emotion of cars generally, you've got a, a gurgling V8 in the background or you've got a, a battery a electric vehicle. I know where my camp's at, but when you take, when you take people out of that emotion, I think that's when you, uh, you start to lose it a little bit. So hopefully we're not, we're not very close to any robo events much rather have Max Verstappen and Lewis Hamilton fighting out on the on the, on the grid line personally there we go and on that note we will end it with uh, the controversial subject of automating Formula 1 we, I can't see that happening based on what everybody what everybody said but listen thanks today for joining uh, me and as always thanks to the audience for listening uh, please remember we like to hear from you so why don't you leave us a review it goes a long way to help us make this better for you we'll be back soon with another episode of Explain It. So keep listening. Thank you.